0: Please do open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, page 1428. I'm going to pick up from verse 19 and we'll read down to verse 24. Today, the topic is money. Jesus says this He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. No one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, or God and mammon as it is in the original. So today we're thinking about money. And I think for many reasons, whenever um, Christians want to speak about money, it it ends up being one of the more awkward and difficult and challenging subjects to look at, for these reasons among others. One is that I think there's a good deal of cynicism attached to religious movements and particularly the church um, on account of financial issues. So we have extraordinarily rich denominations in the world and people feel some resentment about the amount of money that's owned by denominations. We also just have, you know, ridiculous situations where guys go on TV and ask for lots of money and tell you're going to get spiritual blessings as a result. And, you know, I can't, I hold my hands up. I can't defend any of that. Like, I don't, I don't agree with it. And I think it's not a reason for us to ignore the subject of money. It's a reason for us to look more carefully at what Jesus had to say. Um, as you'll see, he's pretty, he's pretty strong on this issue. Another reason why you might find this a difficult subject is just because, you may find that finances are hard and you feel anxious about your financial situation. And, um, you know, for many of us, especially living in a city like this, which is, you know, among the more expensive cities in the world, you know, thinking about having excess money is not really a problem, is it, most of the time? And so you may think, well, what's the relevance of this to me? Or you just feel worried, which is going to be a subject a little bit further down in the Sermon on the Mount. And I think another reason is just that people feel that this is just a private issue. You know, it seems to me that if we're going to judge each other about anything, money is usually the thing we judge each other about. And I don't just mean in the church, I mean in the world at large. You've got the poor on one hand judging you because you have more than them, and you have the wealthy on the other hand judging you because you're kind of beneath them and you have less than them and we're all a little bit coy about what we possess and how much we earn and we feel that finances are a very personal issue. I'd suggest that, again, that's all the more reason why we have to look at it because if it's so private, so personal, then who knows what's going on in your heart when it comes to money. And what Christ has to say is going to speak into your life in a profound way. I'm, I'm absolutely certain of that. Let me just clear the, the road then, what, in terms of what Jesus is absolutely not saying when, he's, when it comes to finances. First of all, he's not saying that it's wrong to have savings, to have possessions, or to have a decent job. <clears throat> Some of you have very decent jobs, um, others of you less so, but um, he's not saying... <laughs> <laughs> He's not saying it's wrong and that we needn't judge one another on account of how good our jobs are or how much savings we have and those kinds of things. Um, He's not giving us permission to judge either. We're going to look at that a little bit further on in the the sermon. Um, He's not against wealth uh, per se. In the Bible, there's lots of guys who are extraordinarily wealthy because God gave them the wealth and trusted them with it. So a man like Abraham, the father of Israel, the father of our faith in a spiritual sense, he is a wealthy man in the scriptures. Job is a wealthy man. God takes it away, but then he gives it back to him. He has even more than he had to begin with. Solomon is estimated to being one of the richest men who ever lived. And so I don't think that you can read the Bible and come away with the impression that it's bad to be rich. In fact, you know, the Bible's pretty strong on on having wisdom about how you handle your finances. Go and look at somewhere like Proverbs 6, and it talks about the ant and how it's industrious and gathers and all these kinds of things. Or 1 Timothy 5, where Paul says that if if anyone fails to provide for his relatives, he's thinking about situations where a man ought to have a job and take care of his mother-in-law who's widowed or his kids who need his provision. He says he's denied the faith, and he's worse than an unbeliever. So absolutely, in the scriptures, the importance of trying to earn as decent a living as you can is, is, is emphasized, and of saving, and of having wisdom in all these things. So what then is Christ putting his finger on here in this section of the sermon? And I think the answer is that he's wanting to dig around in the roots of what's going on in your heart when it comes to financial issues. He's wanting to lay his axe at the root of some of the sins that underlie the way we handle our finances, the way we feel about our finances, what we do with them. So John starts summarizes it really nicely like this. He says, what Jesus forbids, his followers, is firstly the selfish accumulation of goods. So he says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Selfishness. Extravagant and luxurious living. It's very hard to know how to define that, isn't it, in, in a city like London, which is known for its extravagance. Um, The hard-heartedness which doesn't feel the colossal need of the world's world's underprivileged people. So if you have no sensitivity to that, then that's one of the things Christ would speak to you about. The foolish fantasy that a person's life consists in the abundance of his possessions. So just basically being proud about what you own. Or materialism which tethers our hearts to this world. The idea that Well, we're going to get into this stuff. Materialism which tethers your heart to this world. The reason why I want you to understand this stuff before we dig into what Jesus says is that you really need to grasp that in the Bible, money is a neutral thing and that it's always your heart that is the problem. That's why in 1 Timothy, when Paul wants to speak to the Christians there about finances... He addresses the rich Christians, because I think the richer you are, the more potential there is for sin, but also for potential for good. And he underlines both of those things. Listen carefully to these verses. He says, as for the rich in this present age, he says, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. So he says, you rich are particularly, if you earn a decent wage, you are particularly in danger of slipping into pride and self-sufficiency. Those are the dangers that are, are, are particularly powerful in your life. And then he, he turns to them and says, instead, set your hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He says they're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, and thus storing up for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that it may take hold of that which is truly life. So he's saying, to the rich specifically, you have the potential for enormous Sin in your life, but you also have the potential to do enormous good with what you have. Money is not the issue, your heart is always the issue. And I think we 've got to keep that in mind as we now dig into what Jesus has to say. And one last prefatory comment on this: if you consider yourself poor, which of course is a relative term. so let's say let's say you consider yourself relatively poor to the average Londoner, this is no less relevant to your life. Because the same heart issues that can can go on in the hearts of the rich go on in the hearts of the poor also. I always find it interesting that when it comes to general elections, for all the party policies on any number of issues, friends, it's always people's wallets that motivate their vote. It's nearly always people's wallet. That people vote for the party which they think will make them the best off at the end of the day. Why? Because ultimately, it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, We all have this tendency to lean towards covetousness, materialism, greed, all of these things. Envy of what someone else has, all of this stuff. So as we get into this, I want to show you four things that Jesus says. Four truths which he underlines for us, which ought to reshape the way we think about our money. The first is this, that your wealth cannot last on earth but of course it can in heaven. Your wealth can't last on earth, but it can in heaven. It's there in verse 19, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. In one of the other Gospels, Jesus tells a parable where he kind of lampoons the common attitude of wealthy people as they get wealthier and wealthier. And he tells a story about a man who, in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, he tells a story about a man who has far more than he needs. And the more he gets, the more he wants to save. He says a parable, the land of a, a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. So this guy is so wealthy his house cannot contain the amount of wealth he has. He has far more than he could ever need in his own lifetime. So what does he do? He, he speaks to himself and he says this. He says, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you and the things that you are prepared, whose will they be? It seems to me that the stupidity of what's going on in that parable is evident to us when we look from the outside in. Why accumulate far more than you could ever need? The stupidity is obvious to us looking in from the outside, but it's far less obvious when you are that person. Most of us have more than we need, even as I speak, right? And what Jesus wants to tell us is this, it cannot last. The stuff which you are clinging on to can't last. We've seen this through the turbulence of all the economic ups and downs that have happened in the last sort of eight years. You know, when when the financial crisis happened back in 2007, 2008, uh, one of the banks that, that kind of sunk was a bank called Northern Rock. And of all the banks in the world, you think that bank ought to be stable. It's not only rock-like, but it's from up north. <laughs> and it's a northern bank. And, and Northern Rock just was absolutely trashed by the financial crisis. You asked me two weeks ago, what would be the number one car company in the world that, you know, where you'd feel totally secure to invest your hard-earned cash? You might, I might have said to you, well, Volkswagen Audi Group, obviously. And of course... Their shares have plummeted through the sea and so on. There is absolutely no safe space on the earth for the cash that you own. <laughs> Ella's nodding violently. She works for an accountancy firm, so she should know. <clears throat> you know it also from your experience in life that every past purchase that you've ever made has at some point worn thin. You know how you, with excitement now, generation after generation of phone has come out and you bought the new one and then a couple couple of years later, you've thrown it in the bin or sold it at a vastly reduced rate. I always smirk when I see um, in, in the magazine, the news magazine I read, there's often, I think because it's more geared towards sort of, you know, slightly wealthier folk, not that that's my taste, but anyway, they, they always has this advert in there for the Patek Philippe watches. And do you know the slogan that goes with the Patek Philippe watch? It says something like, you know, you, you don't own a Patek Philippe. You just take care of it for the next generation. There's always a picture of a man with his son cuddled up to him, wearing his patek Philippe, ready to pass it on to his son. But, of course, what he doesn't realize is that that same son, you know, so often happens when kids grow up in overprivileged households. Is that they, they grow up slightly more careless about their money. He probably end up selling the watch to fund his album in a studio, even though he can't sing or whatever it is. You know, what, it, what they're trying to sell you is a lie that this, this stuff can last forever, that you can have an everlasting legacy by investing in this life. And, and Jesus wants to turn to us and say, friends, you are mistaken when you buy into this lie. And we know it intellectually, don't we? We know that the parable of the rich fool is obvious, he's stupid, but we don't see it for ourselves. Functionally, we live as though this were true. And I think you can identify it in your heart when, when you have thoughts like this. If I just had that... Or if I just saved that amount, I'd be content, I'd be, I'd be happy, I'd have it together. Or if, you, if Friends, if your life is indistinguishable in, in lifestyle and in spending from the people around you who are kind of in your workplace or in the same sort of social level of you, friends, these people have a materialistic worldview. So this world is all there is. So if your life is indistinguishable from people around you, then there's something wrong with you because that isn't your worldview. If your giving is small, low, then it's another sign, a really excellent sign, that you've bought into this mindset that the stuff I own will last forever. I've read it to you before. I'll probably read it to you dozens more times in the years to come. But there's an amazing little paragraph in C.S. Lewis' most famous essay, The Weight of Glory, where he's trying to make the point that Christ isn't some kind of cosmic spoil sport on these issues. He says, we've got it all entirely the wrong way around. And he puts it like this. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, in the very passages we've been looking at, it seemed that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. And we could add to that possessions, houses, cars, all the rest of it when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what it's meant what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea we are far too easily pleased jesus wants to offer you an alternative he wants to offer you a rock solid investment when he tells you to invest your money in heaven where it cannot be damaged. The problem with this investment, you know how you can invest in bonds which mature after a certain amount of time, your money's locked in? The trouble with this one is that your money's locked in until you die, which is, might seem a, depress, a depressing thought, but it, it means that you can only invest in this if you have a faith to match your giving. If you have a, a rock-solid faith in the God who will not let your inheritance, spoil, or fate It's absolutely to do, then, with how you give what you have. I think that Christ is, set to, is trying to communicate to us here that as we are generous with our finance, there's a way in which by giving to others, we're investing directly in our eternal reward. But I don't think it's just about giving money away. I think there are people, godly people, who have forsaken uh, well-earning jobs or career paths for the sake of giving their lives to Christ in other ways, and their reward is going to be no smaller. A couple of people we met who I think have been the most inspiring people I've ever met in my life are a couple called Joop and Berbel, Dutch and German, which explains the names. And Joop, um, I guess he's probably in his 50s. Um, He went out to live in the Middle East with a missions organization from a very young age, in his early 20s. He spent 30 plus years out in the Middle East. He's currently in Lebanon, in Beirut. You, eccentric guy, he knows the Bible inside out. He knows the Quran inside out. He spends his days talking about Jesus with the most fanatical, hot-headed Muslims he can find. And he loves that, the cut and thrust of debate. He's got people coming in and out of his house, along with his wife, of course, he's helping him host, but he's the guy who's always debating with them. And his wife, Birbel, she comes from a a wealthy background in Germany. Her parents disapproved of this marriage. But together, they turned their backs on what could have been comfortable lives in Holland and Germany, in the Western affluent context. And they gave themselves, they set their face to living in, in real poverty, actually, in order to make Christ known among people who would otherwise not hear about him. When we went to visit them, they had a number of people staying in their tiny flat who were basically refugees before the Middle East thing had blown up, actually. Now, I know that in Beirut, there are, score, there are hundreds of thousands more Syrian refugees, and I'm sure that some of them have found a place to stay in Yupp and Berbel's house. People from Muslim backgrounds who Yupp spends his life pouring into Telling them about Jesus. The way they live was utterly shocking to us in certain respects because th- they have practically nothing. And when they go to the market, for example, they they, they when the, the market seller is selling you know his box of beautiful tomatoes, usually there's a few he's taken out and put on the ground somewhere hidden out of sight, the slightly mouldy, rotten ones. And you Pen and go to the market sellers and look for the mouldy rotten ones underneath the guy's table. And I'm not saying like that's how God wants you to live. But what I'm trying to underline for you is that there are people like that whose reward in heaven, I think, is going to be extraordinary. Because they have forsaken what they could have had in this world for the greater inheritance that Christ will give them. And they have changed the lives of so many people. When Christ is urging you to invest in your heavenly reward... I think he's wanting you to ask questions like this. How does my spending benefit my character? Because I think, in some respects, the character that you are developing has something eternal about it, doesn't it? Paul says, faith, hope, and love, these remain. Does your spending increase your faith, your hope, and your love? Another thing you could ask is this, how does my spending affect the lives of people eternally? How does the handling of my finances accumulate a heavenly reward by impacting the the lives of people for eternity? The reason why I say that is because when Paul um, was writing to the Thessalonian church, he said, What is our hope or joy or crown? of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming. So when we see Jesus face to face, what are we going to be hopeful for in terms of our reward? And then he says this, is it not you, you Christians? You are our glory and our joy. For Paul, you know, he said, I know how to abound and how to be brought low. He knew what it was to have comfort. He knew what it was to suffer profoundly. But the thing that kept him motivated when he was, Lacking possessions in this world was his heavenly reward, and in particular, the people, the faces, the names of the people whose lives he had impacted by his missionary work in the world. Paul um, found himself motivated in this way, and so I'm asking you to ask yourself, how does your spending impact lives of people eternally? Or another one, how does your spending draw you to, to, to Jesus? A few months ago, I looked at um, the example of Barnabas in the book of Acts. Barnabas turns out to be one of the most extraordinary missionaries in the history of the early church. He travels with Paul. He plants loads of churches. He lives a life of of self-denial and self-sacrifice. But do you remember how it all began for him? Do you remember how his trajectory was set at an early time in, in in the early church? It was this that he came and laid everything that he owned at the feet of the apostles. He came and brought all his wealth and gave it to the church and then he was free to live for Christ. Please don't mishear me. I'm not saying that that's what Christ demands of you. But what I am saying is this, that your spending can either increase or decrease your passion for Jesus. When you follow the example of a man like Barnabas, who poured his whole, all his earthly possessions into the cause of Christ, he was then propelled into a life of apostolic mission in spreading the gospel of Jesus. More briefly, I want to bring you on to the next few points that Jesus makes. He says, secondly, your heart follows your wealth. Where your treasure is, he says in verse 21, there your heart will be also. There's a famous proverb in um, Proverbs chapter 4 where we're told, guard your heart, for from it spro- flow the springs of life. I can't find it right now, but that's how, roughly how it goes. Guard your heart, for from it flow the springs of life, or all the issues of life. <laughs> your heart is a profoundly important part of you. Because what it's saying in the proverb is that out of your heart flow all the stuff that you want to do and that you run for and that you pursue. Your ambitions, the reason why you're doing the job or the degree that you're doing or whatever it is you're driving towards. The reason why you're pursuing that person in marriage or married to that person you pursued is because your heart led you into those places and is constantly leading you even right now. The reason why you find this either convicting or not, whether you're interested in what Christ has to say to you or not, is because of what your heart is doing. And so he says, guard your heart. Take care what goes in, what you feed it, and what comes out. But one of the questions that we ought to have is, well, how do I guard my heart so that it flows in the right direction, so that it leads me in the right ways? And the answer, one of the answers that Christ gives us here is that it has an enormous amount to do with your spending. I was reading a little while ago about some psychologists who've defined a kind of phenomenon in in the way we behave, which they describe as sunk cost bias. Have you ever heard of this? What it means essentially is this. If you set up an experiment, let's say with 10 families or 100 families, whatever it is, where these families have invested in a holiday. Let's say they bought a holiday for the bank holiday weekend in August to go to Butlin's Holiday Camp. (coughs) which, as you know, is one of the more classy institutions in the United Kingdom. All you who are not from the UK, you must find your way to Butlins. (laughs) (laughs) It sort of has um, the kind of rides that you think you might die on, and entertainment and that kind of stuff. But anyway, uh, probably many of us who have been to Butlins as kids. So if you find these families who've who've paid hundreds of pounds to bring their kids to Butlins, and then you, you write a letter to them and say, congratulations, you have won a holiday to Centre Parks, which is the slightly more middle-class option on the table for holiday camps. All expenses paid. And it's on the bank holiday weekend in August. Most people, the majority of people receiving that letter, will be excited and then disappointed because they've already booked their Butlins holiday and so they've got to go to Butlins because they paid for it. Now, you know, if you look at it just in a cold, logical way, There's no way you're going to choose the worst holiday over the better holiday when the better one is free and you've already paid for the worst, so just forget it. It doesn't matter. But people choose the one that they paid for because of this tendency that they call sunk cost bias. It's an inability to look at the situation logically and think, well, what would be the best option? But rather, you're drawn by the investment of time and energy and money that you've already put into something. And I think that that is something that we wrestle with on a day-to-day basis when it comes to spiritual matters. When Christ demands obedience of you in certain areas, you're always weighing it up against the sunk cost bias of what you've already given yourself to. So, for example, a relationship. If you find yourself in a relationship that you think is not is not helping your passion for Jesus and you know what Christ wants you to do, still, the amount of time and energy you've poured into that relationship might draw you away from making the right decision, even if you know you'll be happier walking with Christ in obedience. The same is true in all kinds of things. Your career... Your mortgage, your hobbies, your children. I'm not saying these are bad things to invest in. What I am saying is that they can pull you away from Jesus. And the more that you pour into these things, so the more time you give to a particular career, for example, the harder it is to obey that call of Christ that you felt, perhaps in your heart when you were a child. The more we set ourselves on a particular course, the harder it is to obey. And this is true when it comes to financial issues. You remember the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus in Mark 10 and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus starts listing off a number of the Ten Commandments. He says, I've done all those. And then Jesus turns to him and says, this is what you must do. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. He was being offered the most extraordinary opportunity that I think any any person in their right mind who loves Jesus would just give, they'd give their right arm for that opportunity. If only he'd offered to me on that day. I would have loved to have been one of his disciples who gets to follow him face to face. See him and interact and watch the way that Christ does what he does. It's the greatest offer ever. It's the same offer essentially that he offers to you today. But, you know, when you weigh it up against the fact that you've had quite a lot of stuff. And you know, if you give it all away, you won't have it anymore. You know, it's quite a difficult decision at the end of the day. And so he, he left dismayed, it says. His head hung low, he, he walked away. And Christ goes on to say how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's harder, he says, for the rich to go into heaven, or to enter the kingdom, than it is for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. Why? It's because of this kind of phenomenon. This sunk cost bias, this fact that you're so invested in this world. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And while that means that there's so much that can pull you down and pull you away from having a heavenly-minded perspective and keep your mind on this world, your anxieties, your troubles, your desires in this life, nevertheless, you can know this and turn it to your advantage in two ways. The first is this, to overcome it by understanding what's going on in your heart. If you could take a step back as one of those those holiday makers and know the situation more objectively, of course you'd make the right choice. And friends, Jesus is saying, take a step back. Look at how little, how your treasure is drawing you to this world and make the the right choice. One of my favorite preachers is a man uh, called Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was pastor of the chapel across the road, the church that sent us here back in the sort of 1950s and 60s. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones trained as a medical doctor St. Bartholomew's, which was known as one of the best medical schools in the world at the time. And as a young man, he excelled in his his studies. He then went on to to have uh, the prospect of a glittering career in medicine. He was the assistant to a man called Lord Horder, who was the physician to the royal family and had a practice on Harley Street. And Lloyd-Jones had this, like one of the top jobs in the country effectively as a young medic, newly qualified As God began to stir in his heart in his early 20s, he reached about the age of 25 and he just knew that God was calling him to full-time ministry in the preaching of the gospel. And he wrestled with it for about a year. He lost a lot of weight because of the agony of the decision involved. And eventually, he made that call to pack in his medical career Remember this sunk cost bias. All that he'd invested in terms of study. For 25 years old, he had this career ahead of him and the prospect of being a very wealthy man. He trashed it all and decided to find the church that was the poorest one he could find in the poorest, most depressing part of the country he could find. And he went back to his native Wales, to a little town called Aberavon, which was utterly um, under-invested. It was was one of these places where, you know, you you don't choose to move to Aberavon. I've actually visited um, the church building where he ministered there and seen the feel of the place where he was ministering. Tiny terraced houses in a bleak um, space where all these people were just industrial workers, working-class people who had very little, and they had very little hope. And Lord jones left the lights of the City of London found himself the pastor of this small church in the poorest part of the country, one of the poorest parts of the country, and God began to use him mightily in their lives. Eventually, of course, he lifts, God lifts him out of there and puts him back in London, and he has a world-renowned ministry. But he could never have predicted what God was going to do on his journey. He had to give it all to Christ. And when asked, you know, about the sacrifice... Lloyd-Jones' answer was, I made no sacrifice. It was entirely privileged for me to do that. And friends, what I'm trying to underline for you is this. That when you can see the situation rightly and logically, when you can see what it is that's pulling your heart to this world, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also, you can have the choice to overcome it. The drag that pulls you down. You can make that choice. That's one way in which you can turn it to your benefit. The other is you can turn it to your advantage in this way by deliberately investing into God's eternal reward that He's going to give to you. And so putting your treasure somewhere where you want your heart to be. If you're the kind of person who says, I, I'm frustrated that I'm not more passionate for Christ, I kind of want to, but then I'm drawn in all kinds of directions, I think you can overcome it by pushing your money ahead of you, investing in the kingdom. Giving away to the causes which are going to have extraordinary impact on the world, people who are doing great things for God. And so letting your heart follow your money rather than, your, than, than in, in terms of the kingdom direction rather than the other way around. The third thing Jesus says here is He says, Your life is filled by what you look at. He's still speaking about money here. So hear these words carefully. Verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? If I can put it in a nutshell, what he's saying is that the things you look at fill you. We know it in ordinary life. I am not a person who watches sports, but from time to time, I've switched on the TV when Wimbledon's on, and the more you watch, the more it begins to fill your heart, and you get caught up in the whole, when it was Henman, and Andy Murray, if you don't watch it, you have actually zero interest and zero excitement about it. So when England lost last night, you know, frankly, I wasn't too bothered, because I don't watch it. Sorry, don't judge me. I just, you know, I'm still a patriot in some respects. You know, it's true of your stuff. How easy we um, we feed our heart with materialism just by looking at the stuff that we like to buy. I'm guessing a lot of you logged onto the Apple Store website after the the recent, the recent Apple development conference or whatever it was that they had recently. Look at the new iPhones, new iPads, new whatever it is. And so we we look at this stuff and it begins to fill our hearts, doesn't it? I remember in the past when I've been, you know, some of the bigger purchases are made like a, a nice camera. I find myself first just interested, and then every day logging on, looking at reviews, clicking, clicking, looking more and more and more until this thing is so I'm so obsessed with this thing. I just have to purchase it to know if it's as good as I think it's going to be. And of course, sure, it never lasts, does it? The stuff you look at fills your heart. Food is probably the most obvious example. I can't watch cooking programs because they make me feel very angry. I'm looking at the screen at the most extraordinary food and I just want to eat it. I watched like a few minutes of Super Size Me and I was like, I've got to switch this off. I'm just so hungry. (laughs) I need to go and have a Big Mac right now, which is not the the intended effect of that that film. And of course, in terms of attraction as well, you know, when you are, when I was dating C, we were dating back a a decade ago, and um, I had just a few photos of her, you know maybe photos i had taken on my old, you know, LG flip out phone that were kind of like had about three pixels. So you could just sort of guess it was her. But you know, I would look at those pictures. And the more I looked at them, the more she filled my heart. And you know, we ended up getting married. And now I get to look at the real thing on a day to day basis. So that what you look at fills your life. And Jesus says here, that the eye is the lamp. He says, and Depending on what you're you're fixed on, whether it's literally looking at stuff or whether it's the eye of your imagination. So let's have a broad understanding of what he's talking about here. He says either your body, your being, who you are, is going to be full of darkness or it's going to be full of light. And he wants you to understand that there's a stark contrast and it's all to do with where you fix your eyes. What what does he mean by darkness or light? Let me give you a few examples. He means, for one thing, lies or truth. There's the lie of consumerism, which you're being sold on a day-to-day basis. You are being bombarded with consumerism. You see hundreds, if not thousands of adverts on a day-to-day basis. And they're constantly promising you a better life if you buy into what they're selling. And actually, you, don't, you need very little to have a contented life. And the one thing you need above all is Christ. Christ. And so you can fill your heart with darkness by believing in the lie of consumerism or with light, by believing in what the scriptures tell us, which is that to have your eye on Christ is to know true joy and satisfaction that will not just last now, but will last into eternity. <coughs> darkness or light. It also means that you can, f- you can have a life that's consumed with sin or with purity. What you fix your eyes on will fill you with darkness or light in terms of whether you are given to sin or purity. You know how temptation works. First you have a look, then you have another look. Eventually you can't take your eyes off what, what you want to do, and you, keep, and, and you want it more and more. It's, 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 it's very vividly obvious to you when you have kids. You know, Seth, there's certain things he's not allowed to eat. C gives him most stuff, but there's just a few things that she doesn't, including sweets. And so we sometimes have a little jar of sweets in the house to give to guests you know, when they're around. And Seth will look at those sweets, and, he, and then he'll start asking, Can I hold one? Can I hold one? And you say, Sethy, not allowed. Can I hold one? And so if he holds it, he'll be like, first it's can I see it? And then it's like, can I hold it? And you know, he ends up holding this thing knowing he's not allowed it. But like, you can practically see the dribble just building up in his mouth because he is tempting himself. He's filling his heart with the vision of this sweet. And friends, we are no different, are we? When it comes to temptation, think about the things that you're tempted to. You just fill your heart with it by letting the lamp of your body, the eyes, be fixed on it. But the the opposite is true when it comes to purity. You can't just get away from sin by just denying or closing your eyes. You have to fill your eyes with something different, something better, something life-giving. And in particular, Jesus. You have to. You have to find a way of putting Christ before your eyes on a day-to-day basis and being totally consumed and satisfied in Him. Darkness or light. It also means death or life, if I'm going to be really frank with you. When Jesus spoke to that rich young ruler, he went away sad. But do you know the sadder thing still than what he even realized was that he went away embracing death. He had effectively denied Jesus because he denied Christ's call to him to come and be his disciple. The eye is the lamp of the body. Be careful. What you focus upon in life. To put it positively, Christ says this. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. The word he uses for healthy there is this word single. If your eye is single, focused. Focused in the right direction, your whole body will be full of light. When I was learning to drive, my instructor would take me down a very narrow street with cars on both sides of the road. And he would say, you need to fix your eyes on that object at the end of the street in order to navigate this. And I never hit one of those cars. Praise the Lord. (laughs) But you know, that's what Jesus is saying to you here. If your eye is single, focused. That's why I read to you those verses from uh, the psalm at the very beginning of the service. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after that. I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. One thing. A single eye. Lastly, he tells us that you have to choose a God. No one can serve two masters, he says. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and mammon. Or God and money. He uses the word mammon, which was kind of a way of personifying <coughs> Money as a as a deity. Three things that you need to understand about this. The first is this that a God is a ruling or governing force, whether you think of it as a god or not. So the things that control you in your life they are gods. Money is one example of an adulterous God. That's the second thing. You don't have to go away and form a physical idol to worship idols. It just has to be something with enough force in your life, that it controls your decision-making, that it becomes a God to you. And when money is, is that thing, when the allure and the promise of wealth or of possess, possessing things begins to control your decisions and your desires and your, your choices about life, that's when it can become a God to you. And hence, I think Christians rightly describe the shopping centers and malls like Westfield as the great temples of our age of consumerism and your career as your priestly devotion to that God. Which brings me to this point. Worship as a form of love is by definition exclusive. To use sort of modern way of speaking, Christ is calling you into an exclusive relationship. Michael Ramsden, the preacher, tells a story of when he was a youth leader with his wife and they inherited a youth group of entirely girls, so young teenage girls. And one week they said to these girls, we'd like to do a Q&A. I want you to write down all your questions on a piece of paper and next week we'll answer your questions. Well, all the girls individually wrote down, the, wrote down their question. And all of them basically wrote the same question in slightly different words. They wrote, what is love? And why marry if you fall in and out and in and out of love? So Ramsden had to think about this. And when it came around the next week to meet with the youth group, he did a thought experiment with them. He got all the girls to sit down and close their eyes and engage their imagination. He said, imagine you were at school. And the most attractive boy in the year comes up to you and says, I love you. How do you feel? And immediately, all their faces lit up. You can imagine. And then he said, Now imagine the next day you go to school, and that same boy is speaking to one of your friends, and he says, I love you. And immediately, all these girls' faces look depressed. Even as they're engaging their imagination, they felt the wrongfulness of this situation. He's just making the point, That love, there's a kind of love which is only love because it's exclusive. And when Christians think about worship of God, they understand that it's that kind of love. An exclusive love. Which is why the Bible talks about God being jealous for us. We sing the song, he is jealous for me. I know the word jealousy is often associated with slightly neurotic paranoid tendencies, but when the Bible speaks about jealousy, it speaks about God's fierce possession of you as his own. He doesn't want your heart to be shared with anyone else. And it's his right to do that, to feel that, to express that. In Isaiah 42, he puts it like this. I am the Lord which is another way of saying, he's using his proper name. I am who I am. I am Yahweh. The God above all. The God who created everything. I am the Lord. That is my name, he says. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. What he's saying is effectively this. That when we begin to love other things alongside God, in the way that Jesus is describing, to try and worship two gods. We're doing two things. We're firstly committing adultery in our hearts. And it's possible to commit adultery with this God, Mammon, money, possessions. And the second thing we're doing is we're denying who God is. Because to put God alongside another God, like money or whatever it is in your situation is not only to elevate these carved idols to the level of the living God, it's also to bring him down to the level of a carved idol. To say, you're one among many. Which again, is ridiculous when we look at it in the cold light of day. But that is the way our hearts tend to lean. It was John Calvin who said that our hearts are idol factories. They're constantly manufacturing idols. New things for us to be drawn away from the living God whether you realize it or not. And money is one of the most powerful ones out there. It gets into you in ways you don't even realize. Who is your God, effectively, Jesus wants you to answer. And he can ask you that question and demand that you acknowledge him with all the grace and love that he brings to that question because of this reason. Christ alone can say that he has purchased you. In the Bible, in more than one place, when it's speaking about the death of Jesus on the cross, uses financial sort of imagery to capture what it is he did for you when he died on the cross. One example is in 1 Corinthians 6 when Paul's telling people to live pure lives. He says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You're not your own. Why? Because you were bought with a price. Christ purchased you. He poured out His blood so that He could own you as His own. As His bride. Similarly, in 1 Peter... Chapter 1 and verse 18 and 19, it says, knowing that you were ransomed. Remember, a ransom is a payment that's laid down to rescue someone. It says, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, which, by the way, includes the futile culture of consumerism and materialism that's all around us. You were ransomed. You were bought out from that futility Not with perishable things like silver or gold, he says, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus bought you when he died on the cross. So when he lays before you what is basically an ultimatum, and he says, do you want to worship God or do you want to worship money? A stark either-or choice. A lot of people say, well, how very intolerant of him But Christ will say, I alone have purchased your life. And he owns you not in order to subject you and to crush you and to cause you to live a life that's ultimately going to be futile. He owns you in order to fill you with the abundance of his goodness. I have come, he says, that they may have life and have it abundantly. Friends, I'm encouraging you today and every day To lay down and to kill your desire to live for money. Because it will kill you otherwise. And instead, take up the call of Christ to be a person who wants to live for him with all your heart. We're going to take communion. As we do it, this is always just the perfect opportunity to respond to Jesus in the way that he wants us to. Which is first of all with gratitude. With thankfulness, we tear off the bread just as his body was torn, and we consume it knowing that he gives us his life giving self. We drink the wine just as his blood was poured out for us, and we do it remembering that that same blood bought us. And Christ wants to own you entirely. So, friends, as we pass around this bread. I encourage you to feast on Christ, repent of your sin, and let him fill your heart again today.